You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. I think we all have a birth certificate. Say, well, what is a birth certificate? A birth certificate has some vital information on it. It's got Uh, Of course, your name, your first, your middle, and your last name. It's got where you were born. It's got the date that you were born. And it has the name of your parent or parents on the birth certificate. All of us probably has a birth certificate. It's an official record of your existence as a human being in a civilized society. Now, uh, most of us probably know who our parents were, and most of us probably know who our grandparents were. If you're like me, you don't know a whole lot about your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents. If you want to find out about your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents, you need to probably go to Ancestry.com. When you go to Ancestry.com, they're going to trace you all the way back. But if you really want to get deep into your genealogy then you probably need to get a DNA test done, and Ancestry.com at one point did that. I don't know if they're doing it now or not, but uh, the DNA test basically shows your origins from deep within you in your DNA. And so this morning, we're not going to be talking about uh, our genealogy. We're going to be talking about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we find that in Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to turn there. He tells us in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. The word genealogy comes from the word Genesis or beginnings, and basically a genealogy is a line of descent traced continuously from an ancestor. In other words, your genealogy takes you back to your beginning and even even as far back as it can possibly go. And so Matthew is giving us the genealogy of of Jesus. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is the anointed one, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so we have his genealogy, and his genealogy would have, would have been a matter of public record. In the genealogy of Jesus over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what we're calling the women of Advent. And I want to read the genealogy of Jesus. Just the first six verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This morning we're going to be looking at Tamar. That's going to be found in Genesis 38. But let me read the other names that we're looking at in the women of Advent. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and we know her to be Bathsheba. 
Someone may ask, and it's okay to ask, why are we doing a, a series of sermons on the women of Advent? And there are a lot of you, if you Google it, you're going to find that there are a lot of folks that have done that. We borrowed the title. I don't know what, how, how many other ways you could say it. We're not really creative in our titles for series as it relates to this particular series, other than there are these women in the Bible, in the genealogy of Jesus that point to the birth of Christ. So why would we want to look at the women of Advent? And I'm going to give you one reason specifically. There's not any other motive on our part except that these five women are in the Bible. That's it, period. That's it. These five women are in the Bible, and quite frankly, it is, it is unheard of, it is unusual, and it is quite unexpected that you would find women at all in a genealogy. Therefore, when you're reading a genealogy, usually it has the firstborn, and you see these women's names, you've got to understand that Matthew writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has included these individuals, and not only do we have access to uh, their birth certificates, Jesus' birth certificate and Jesus' genealogy, genealogy, we can look back at these people and maybe begin to even understand on a deeper level, not necessarily his physical DNA, but the origin of Jesus, where he came from and how all of this came to be in bringing the Son of God to pass and what God was trying to accomplish through this genealogy. And so I want you to turn to Genesis 38, and we're going to look at the narrative. When I say story, I don't mean a fairy tale. I mean, it's, it's, it's somebody giving you a, a biographical sketch and events that happened within that biographical sketch, a narrative. It's not make-believe, it's true. I really do believe that Tamar really did exist, but we're going to be looking at uh, Tamar in Genesis 38, and if I refer to it as a story, I'm not referring to it as something that is not true. Before we get to Genesis 38, what I'd like to do is help you understand where it all fits in the big picture of Genesis. There are 66 books in the Bible. There are 39 Old Testament books. There are 27 New Testament books. And if we look at Genesis, there are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. And Genesis can be broken down into two major parts. There's the primeval prologue. Uh, essentially, it's, it's the early beginnings of human history. That's what we mean by primeval prologue. And that includes includes Genesis 1 through 11. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the early beginnings of human history. That's why in Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation. In Genesis 3 to 5, we have the fall. In Genesis 6 to 9, we have the flood. In Genesis um, 10 and 11, we have the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis 12, we begin looking at personalities. I want to go back to Genesis 3 and verse number 15. Some things are going on. Adam and Eve have chosen to rebel against God, chosen to believe the lies of Satan, chosen to do the very thing that God told them not to do, believing that Satan was wiser, believing that what Satan had to offer was better than what God had to offer. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve falling into sin. And so God comes and he says, what's going on? And this blaming process begins. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. God responds by saying, all right, there are going to be these curses here in Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis 3.15, he says that there is going to be the seed of a woman. There is going to be a child born to a woman. And that child that is born to this woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. 
and the serpent is going to bruise the heel of this child. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, we see this prophecy regarding the coming of Messiah who is going to redeem his people from their sin. He is going to crush and be victorious over this enemy of God's creation and of God's people. And so we see early on, even in the primeval prologue, this hope that is ours for salvation from sin that Adam and Eve have gotten us into. So that covers the first 11 chapters. When you come to Genesis 12, we start looking at personalities. We start looking at these historical figures. We see, um, we see Abraham, right? A promise is made to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to call you out. You're going to be mine. I'm going to make of you a great nation. There is this promise that is given to Abraham that God never, ever goes back on. No matter what Abraham or any of his descendants do, God makes a promise, and God in his providence, in his power, in his purpose, makes good on his promise. In Genesis 12 to 25, we see this narrative related to Abraham in Genesis 25 and 26, we see the narrative of Isaac. Abraham had one son, Isaac, and then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And in Genesis 26 to 36, we see the story of Jacob. Jacob was a messed up man. Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob, the name Jacob, Yaakov in Hebrew means a grabber of the heel. It means he will trip you up. And Jacob um, had four different women that he had children with. And he had 13 children, 12 sons and one daughter. And what we see in the story of Jacob, and we're going to see a little bit of it today, is that, that 10 of these sons were wicked, wicked, godless Men, I don't know what kind of home they grew up in. I don't know what I don't know what um, uh, Isaac was doing in in uh, or Jacob was doing in parenting, but uh, something was happening in the home. These were some mean dudes. Um, they they were ruthless, and so we see. Abraham, Genesis 12 to 25, we see Isaac, Genesis 25 and 26, we see um, Jacob, Genesis 26 to 36, and then we see Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50. Those are the, the four primary figures that we see in the book of Genesis. You come to Genesis chapter 38, this is where we see Tamar. What you've got to understand is in Genesis chapter 37, some significant things happen in the life of Joseph, but all of a sudden, Genesis 38 is like an interruption. It's like we're going to take a commercial break now and take you all the way over to a different country and show you the life of Judah. And then in Genesis 39, we come back to Joseph. And so we need to understand that, but there's some things you need to, you need to understand about Genesis chapter 37 before we move on to Genesis chapter 38. Eight. In Genesis chapter 37, um, Jacob sent Joseph out to check on his brothers. Joseph goes out to check on his brothers. Joseph is a dreamer. Joseph, Joseph is, is an unusual child. He's got a coat of many colors. He's the favorite son of his father. And the 10 brothers are out there. The, they're, they're keeping uh, their flocks. They're doing whatever 10 brothers do. They're goofing off. They actually had done some things they probably shouldn't have done. But they see Joseph coming. And these wicked brothers they, they hatch a plan to literally kill their brother. They end up putting him in a pit, selling him into slavery. Now he's gone. They're left with his coat. 
and they take his coat back to his father after dipping it in lamb's blood because they want to deceive their father and make their father think that Joseph has been killed. They did not want their father to know that they had been up to mischief. I want you to look at Genesis 37, and there's something that is extremely interesting that we'll see in Genesis 37, we'll see in Genesis 38, and we'll see it in Genesis 42. We also see it, I believe, in the genealogy of Jesus, the reason that we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look at Genesis 37. They brought the, the robe to the Father. They know whose robe it is, but they're, they're playing a trick. They're playing a game. They're deceptive, wicked men. Verse 32 says, And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their Father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your sons or not. In Genesis chapter 37, we see the introduction of this phrase that basically is saying, identify, please. It's, it's hakar na in Hebrew. Identify this, please. Identify this, please. Who does this belong to? Can you tell me what this is? Can you tell me what this is? That story comes, or that part of the Joseph narrative comes to an end, um, and, and we go to chapter 38. And I want to begin reading in Genesis chapter um, 38 before we look at Genesis 39, just briefly. I'm going to read portions of it, and I'm not going to read portions of it. You can read it yourself. Um, I, I want to be as discreet, and at the same time, um, if you're reading through your Bible with your kids, you've already read this several times, depending on how old they are, right? Um, but anyway, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. So Genesis 37, Judah is with his brothers. Judah is involved in bringing this this bloody garment to their dad and saying, Dad, can you identify this? He's part of this plan of deception with his father. Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Every time you see Judah and Hira hanging out, bad things happen. Uh, we, we, we must understand that something tragic has happened in Judah's life. There is this, this, this monumental rebellion that he has experienced. No doubt Judah knew the Genesis 12 promise to Abraham that had been recited over and over again, that was given to Isaac, that was given to Jacob, that was recited to his sons. God has a special purpose for you. God has a special plan for you. We are a special chosen people. God wants to use us to bring great blessing to everybody in the world. Judah said, not me. I'm out of here. He goes to a foreign land, hanging out with foreign people. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Shua was the certain Canaanite who had a daughter. We don't know the name of the daughter. He took her, and you see the rapidity of what's happening. Uh, Judah very quickly shows us what his character is like, and it's extremely and profoundly weak. He cares very little for people, all he cares about is his own self-gratification. He has an intimate relationship with this woman, this daughter of Shua, and the text tells us in verse 3, and she conceived and bore a son and called his name Er. 
she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in, the, was in Chezib when she bore him. So he goes and finds a Canaanite woman and marries her and has three children with her in rebellion against God's plan and his family. Verse 6, and Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now we begin to see the, the life of Tamar unfold before us. Let me just mention something as a note about Tamar. Tamar probably at this time was 13 years old. Er was probably 15 years old. Now, some of you that are 13 and 15 are thinking, yeah, my parents need to hear this, right? They won't even let me date. And there were people getting married when they were 13 and 15. I'm not sure that we have the social um, capacity that they had Uh, They had a ton of responsibility on them, and when they were able to begin to procreate, then they found themselves getting married as opposed to waiting uh, for a a, a long time. So they're very young. They're very young. Tamar is very young. Um, In fact, by the time we see Tamar uh, going and deceiving Judah, Tamar is probably 19 years old. She's not some old, uh, old widow that nobody would want anything to do with. So... Um, Judah took a wife for heir, his firstborn. I also want to point out in the text, it's Judah that's assuming responsibility for his son's marriage, number one. But number two, Judah is assuming responsibility for his son's wife. There there is this uh, Leverite uh, marriage. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10, which shows that there is this obligation on the part of the family that this woman marries into to ensure that she maintains her dignity and brings up offspring to her husband. She has this usefulness through the bearing of children. And so Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, like his dad, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So here's a man who has... Become a part of this rebellious family that, that wanted to put his younger brother to death because he hated him so terribly. Now he begins having his own children and his own children just like him and his brothers are wicked men. Let us dads be careful. Let us be careful. Our sin has a profound impact on our family. None of us sins in isolation. None of us sins without it having impact. And no matter how well we hide our sin, no matter how rebellious and stiff-necked and hard our hearts are, or maybe no matter how well we try to treat our children differently than we were treated or teach them, you know, we always heard when we were growing up and parents could say it, then they can't say it. Now don't do as I do, do as I say. And Judah probably thought he was going to get by and everything was going to be okay. What he didn't realize is that his character was being reproduced in the life of his children. And his son, Er, was a wicked man. Well, according to the Leverite law, then the next son in line had this obligation to marry or be in relationship with this woman, Tamar, and that was the son, Onan. Let me just be very quick to say this text is not about birth control. 
This text is not about a lot of things that a lot of people make this text about. This text is about a man who was in rebellion like his older brother, a man who was wicked like his older brother and like his dad, a man who refused to obey the word of God, a man who said, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, a man who said, I'm going to make my own rules, a man who said, I'm going to live my life my way. And Onam was just like air and God killed him for his rebellion and his sin. Don't make more out of the text than is in the text. Well, there were three sons, Shelah. Shelah was young, and, and so we see these two sons that are dead. We see Tamar, who now probably by the age of 15 is twice a widow, twice a widow. If you will, verse 10, you can see what the Scripture says about Onan and when uh, he did, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, here's Judah. Now, this is interesting. This is profound. Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. Sheila might have been, I don't know, couldn't have been much younger, probably about the same age. Obviously, Judah, in his deception, Judah and his self-centeredness had some concerns. In fact, we can see those concerns in the next verse, or in the next phrase, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. He's thinking, Tamar, she's, she's, you know, she's the black widow. Everybody that marries her dies. And so he's decided in his mind that Tamar is toxic. He lied to her. He had no intention of giving Sheila to her and letting her marry Sheila and have children and have dignity and have wholeness and have purpose and have value in their society. Because back then, if you didn't have a husband and you didn't have kids, then you were thought of as somebody that something was wrong with. There was a, there was a problem. Now, now, now in our society, it's if you do have kids, you got a problem. But anyway, there's this difference in value. And so, so here is um, Tamar now waiting at her father's house. Verse 12, and in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. So, so the mother of these three sons dies. When Judah was comforted, so he's gone through a mourning process, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Bad things happen when Judah hangs out with Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she, had not been, and, and she had not been given to him in marriage. She knew. She knew. Quite frankly, Judah, we're going to see later on in the text, had this disdain and hatred for Tamar. He had this disdain, this, this, this disdain and hatred. You see, here's what Judah did. Instead of Judah looking at his own life, And blaming himself for the wickedness of his sons, Judah looked at Tamar and blamed her for the death of his sons. Be, beware of self-justification. 
Beware of self-justification. It's, it's hardwired into us as human beings. It's the way we think. Somebody tells you you're wrong. Somebody calls you out. What's your first reaction? Our first reaction is self-justification. That's what Adam did in the garden. Adam, what in the world is going on? <laughs> I'm fine, Lord. I'm good. I got it together. But let me tell you something. Everything was fine until this woman you brought to me. He couldn't say, I, I'm a sinner, I am wrong, I am fallen, I am broken. He couldn't do that. He couldn't admit that he was wrong. He had to blame it. He had to blame it on somebody else. So here, here is Judah. Judah is determined that he's not giving uh, Shelah, his son, to be married to Tamar. And so Tamar hatches a plan. Now, she knows what's going on. She's, she knows they're going up to shear the sheep. She knows what happens when they go up to shear the sheep. When they get through shearing the sheep, all the guys get together, and it's like, hey, guys, it's Miller time. You know? Is, uh, is, that, is that too dated? Is Miller time? Nobody understands what Miller time is. They're going to go grab them some cold ones. They're going to go out, and they're going to party, and they're going to get really loosened up, and they're going to get a feeling good. And boys are just going to be boys, amen. And men are going to do what men do, and they're going to sow their wild oats while they're young. Tamar had been in the family for a few years now. She knew that Judah was quite predictable, quite fleshly, quite self-centered. And so what she did is she prepared herself to capture him in an unsavory relationship. And that's exactly what happened. Judah passes by, he sees and thinks he doesn't realize it's Tamar, this woman that he despises, this woman who was responsible for the death of Er, this woman who was responsible for the death of Onan, this woman that he was determined not to uh, allow to have his son Shelah. He now finds himself in, a, in an intimate, in a physical, I don't want to call it intimate, it wasn't intimate, it was a physical relationship with her. And, and so she, she says, what are you going to give me for this exchange? And he says, I'll give you a goat, but I don't have a goat. And she says, well, why don't you just give me your wallet? That's basically what she's saying here. Um, he said, what pledge shall I give you? Verse 18. She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. The signet was like uh, the, the, the insignia of the family. It was like his ID. So she said, give me these things. This woman is thinking way ahead. So he gave them to her and they did what they intended to do. And she arose, she took off the veil. She went back to her father's house. Judah sent the goat so he could get his stuff back, so he could get his wallet back from her. And she was nowhere to be found. It shows you how far Judah had fallen because... When his friend Hira the Adulamite came to bring the goat, he says, where's the cult prostitute that was here by the roadside? Judah was so rebellious. Judah was so hardened in his heart. Judah was so cold to the things and the purposes of God for his life that he was even willing to enter into a relationship with someone that he believed was a cult prostitute. He had fallen so very far. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, 
This is where we see his hatred. Basically, basically what Judah said was, take, burn, take, burn. Notice what, notice what the text says. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. In the Hebrew, there's just two words in that sentence. Take, burn. Now, the Levitical law would demand that she be stoned. Burning was reserved for the most wicked of people in his self-justification, in his self-justification, not knowing that Tamar had his wallet. Judah says, burn her, burn her, destroy her. I hate her. Bring her out and let her be burned. Evidently, they'd gotten a fire going or gathered the wood at least, and she was being brought out. And she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify. She said, do you recognize these? Just like Judah stood before his father with Joseph's garment, and in deception said to his father, Hakanah, please identify. Now Tamar is saying to Judah, Hakanah, please identify. No doubt when he heard that, he had to think back to his sin and his deception of his Father, no doubt, as he heard that and he recognized that it was his signet and his cord and his staff, in verse 26, said, then Judah identified them. Judah had, Judah had to be smitten with the reality of his own sin, and he had to be smitten with the reality that even more than Tamar deserved to be burned, that he deserved to be burned. Because if she was in sin, he too was in sin. In fact, he was the cause of the sin. Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. He has come to the end of his arrogance and his self-justification. And all of a sudden, Hucker, nah, please identify, caused him to see himself with the identification of a sinful man, not this self-righteous, rebellious man who could go and do anything that he wanted to do without any penalty. The weight of the death of his sons fell on him. The weight of the rejection of the clear command of Scripture as to what he should do. The weight of him lying to Tamar fell on him. The, the, the weight of her needing to do what she did. The weight of his responsibility. By the way, in a Leverite marriage, the father who said, I'm going to go find a daughter, finds that daughter. He himself is assuming responsibility to be the kinsman redeemer, to bring children from that woman. All of this is going on, and he says, she is more righteous than I. Now, please let us understand in the text, she is not, he is not saying she is righteous, and he's not saying that he is righteous, but on a relative scale, she's more righteous than he is. I don't think Tamar deserves the judgment that we offer to her. 
She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. For the first time, we see conviction gripping his heart, and he did not know her again. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. The word the name Perez means breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. There are four things that we see if we're going to outline the text, and I've already hopefully explained um, on a surface level some of the nuances that are taking place there. Um, there, is, there is Judah's rebellion in the first section, and he's living a life of rebellion. You've got to see Judah's rebellion in order to understand what God is doing in his heart through the story of Tamar. Secondly, not only is there Judah's um, rebellion, rebellion against God, rebellion against his family, rebellion against the Genesis 12 promise, re rebellion against the word of God, Rebellion against this daughter that he took from Shua and said, I will assume responsibility for her. Rebellion against this woman and leaving her in this place where she, as a last resort, in order to have dignity and wholeness, had to hatch this plan that she hatched. He rebelled. He rebelled. Secondly, we see not only Judah's rebellion, but Tamar's Rejection. As I've already said, Tamar was identified by Judah as being toxic. He wanted his son Sheila to have nothing to do with her. He wanted nothing to do with her. And he was so relieved. He was so relieved when they found her pregnant. He said, burn her. Burn her now. Thank God she's been caught in sin. Thank God we're going to be able to burn her because I'm going to be justified in not giving my son Sheila to her. And if something were to happen to my son Sheila, I'm going to be justified in not having to bring up children through this toxic specimen of a human being. He could not stand her. She was, she was rejected, and she was hopeless. We see thirdly in the text Tamar's desperation. She knew Judah well. She knew Judah cared for no one. She knew the hardness of his heart. She knew that all she had to do was stand by the road, and he's not going to come up and ask her who she is. He's not even going to look in her face. He is just going to, he's looking at her as a means for his own self-gratification. And she found herself in a relationship. She found herself in, with child. And then finally we see in verses 20 to 30, Tamar's Tamar's. Redemption. Tamar's redemption. Identify this, please. There is a breakthrough. Let me, let me talk to you about breakthrough as we try to make some application from the text this morning. The, the, the one thing, the one thematic statement that I would take away from this text is this. Our refusal to embrace all that we are in life diminishes our capacity for experiencing all that we are in Christ. 
Our refusal to embrace all that we are in life diminishes our capacity for experiencing all that we are in Christ. Can I, can I tell you that, that we're, we're self-righteous people? We're self-righteous people. We're as messed up as Judah. <laughs> we, we had to kind of sanitize this stuff. You know why we had to kind of sanitize it? We had to kind of sanitize it because, quite frankly, we think we're better than Tamar. That's why we had to sanitize it. We are self-righteous people. Why are we self-righteous? Because we don't want anybody to know just how really bad we are. Why are we self-justifying people whenever, whenever there's a disagreement? We figure out a way to justify ourselves. You mean you say, I'm not that way. Let me talk with your wife for just one minute. Because every time she tries to bring something up, you've got some reason why. You've got some self-justification. By the way, do you ever see self-justification in your home? Do you ever catch your kids doing something wrong? What do they do? Do they repent? Do they say, I'm sorry? Or do they begin a whole litany of why they're in that, that room to begin with, looking in that drawer, plundering through stuff? Why, why, why do you, why do you, they're going to give you, well, you know, I was, they're going to lie to you. They're gonna, so, so here we are, a self-righteous, self-justifying, sinful people. Folks, there is, there is grace that is greater than our sin. There is one who came and lived a perfect life because he knew that we couldn't. There is one who died for our sin in our place. There is one who rose victorious over sin, and he gives us his perfect righteousness, and he pays for our sin in full, and he gives us victory over sin and the hope of our resurrection and eternal life. The problem is this, that we're trying to do it on our own through our self-righteousness and our self-justification. When in reality, we ought to walk in and be able to worship God and say, you know what? It doesn't matter. This is the audience that I'm not living for. This is the audience that I'm living with. But this is the audience that I'm not, I'm not living for this audience and say, you know what? God knows everything about me and I'm going to stop being self-righteous. I'm going to stop being self-justifying and I'm just going to come to grips with the reality of who I am in my sin and I'm as bad as Judah and I'm as bad as Tamar and you are too. You are too. Our refusal to embrace all that we are in life diminishes our capacity. I'm so glad Genesis 38 is here, and I'm so glad Genesis 38 didn't sanitize anything. And I'm so glad that God in his grace is so huge and massive that he can take the messes that we make of our lives and use them to bring great glory to himself. Think about it. Think about it. Our refusal to embrace all that we are in life diminishes our capacity for experiencing all that we are in Christ. If you're spending all of your time trying to self-justify, trying to be self-righteous, trying to hide your sin, never, never confessing sin to a brother or sister in Christ, Never meeting with other brothers or sisters in Christ, talking about your struggles, talking about your temptations, talking about your fallenness. 
you're never going to understand and enjoy the beauty of the grace of God and you're never going to be able to worship Him freely and fully. Let me talk about some breakthroughs. Judah, what, what, is, what, what is the breakthrough? Judah was punishing Tamar for his sins. Judah was punishing Tamar for his sins. All that he blamed her for, he was guilty of himself. He, he blamed her for the death of his sons. That guilt falls at his feet. He's blaming her for being pregnant with the child when it is his refusal to do the right thing by her that put her in that position. He's blaming her for being unfaithful when it was his unfaithfulness. Judah was punishing Tamar for his sins, and in that moment of breakthrough, he cried out, she is more righteous than I am. Secondly, second breakthrough, we've got to understand that Jesus punished himself for our sin. While, while Judah was punishing Tamar for his sin, Jesus punished himself for our sin. That is grace. That is what we see in this story. This is the breakthrough. When we accept his punishment for our sin, he calls us righteous. He calls us righteous. He paid for our sin, and he calls us righteous. We see him saying, she is more righteous than I am. Judah finally comes to grips with his own sin, and we see in Christ who we are. In Christ, we are a righteous people. Not that we should be self-justifying, not that we should be arrogant, not that we should be self-righteous, but we should live in the righteousness of Christ and live in relationship to him as one who is accepted. We don't have to put on masks. We don't have to be phony. We don't have to be posers. We don't have to play games. Third breakthrough is this. Stop punishing everybody else for your sin. Stop punishing everybody else for your sin. Accept the Father's punishment of His Son for our sin and live a redeemed life. We can be free and whole and victorious. Our refusal to embrace all that we are in life diminishes our capacity for experiencing all that we are in Christ. Let me just, let me just close with four points of, of application, and, uh, and I'll be done. In this text, we see four things. Number one, we see God breaking through in providence. We see God breaking through in providence. I don't know how messed up you think you are this morning. I know how messed up I am, and I know how messed up I've been. And were it not for the providence of God in every one of our lives and Him breaking into the mess that we have made because of our sin, there would be no hope for any of us. God breaks through in providence. God's promise and purpose are always greater than our sin. I'm useless, I'm hopeless. I'm unredeemable. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you say, I've been so bad. I feel so ashamed. My life has been a life of disgrace and rebellion and lust. Be hopeful this morning. God in his power and in his providence and in his purpose works through our mess to accomplish his mission. That's why Tamar's name is given to us in Genesis or in Matthew chapter 1. God worked through that mess to accomplish his purpose. We see this breakthrough in the providence of God. Secondly, we see this breakthrough in grace. 
Perez, his name means breakthrough. What are the breakthroughs in the text? We see a breakthrough in the providence of God. We see a breakthrough in the grace of God. Uh, I, I, I don't want to paint Tamar in a negative, despicable light. Her back was against the wall. Her relationship with Judah was justified in that he was a kinsman redeemer. I'm not suggesting that this is prescriptive in any way. Okay? I'm not suggesting, sug suggesting that we uh, assume the Leverite marriage laws. I'm not suggesting that any of you be the kinsman redeemer for your daughter-in-law. I'm not suggesting that any of that is something that Scripture is telling us to do, but Scripture is certainly describing for us things that were happening in that culture with its nuances. And what we see in that is Tamar operating within the parameters of those cultural nuances. What I, I see in Tamar is a, a relentless faith in relentless grace. Tamar was willing to risk everything. She was willing to risk everything. She didn't understand. She was, she was a Canaanite. She didn't understand Messiah, I don't think. Maybe she did. She didn't understand the ramifications of her being in the genealogy of the Son of God. She didn't understand that. But she did understand that her life was meaningless and purposeless and that she did not want her life to be that way. And she believed that hopefully there was enough grace for her to pursue this avenue of redemption. And so there was this relentless faith and this relentless grace. She wanted wholeness. She wanted dignity. She wanted a family. It was all according to Scripture. And so she acted and she planned and she trusted. We see this breakthrough of grace. This is an outpouring of the grace of God. And, and God does what he does that he might magnify this outpouring of grace on his people to the praise of the glory of His grace. Our great brokenness and our great sin is merely a platform for the outpouring of God's grace through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. I want you to be free this morning. And your sin will never make you free, and more of your sin will never make you free. It will, never, it will only destroy you. I want you to be free this morning, and I want you this morning to have, I want you to see this, this relentless grace, this powerful grace where, where sin abounded, grace did much more bound. That is relentless grace, and I want you today to say the only hope for me is trusting this relentless grace, and so I'm going to trust this massive, gracious God with all of my life, no matter what it costs me. And she was that far from being in the fire if she hadn't had the man's wallet. Thirdly, third breakthrough. God breaks through in transformation. If you will, go over to Genesis. In Genesis 39, uh, we see Joseph. And by the way, there are 15 comparisons, 15 parallels between the life of Christ and the life of Joseph to, 
To say that Joseph perhaps is a type of Christ maybe is an understatement. There are 15 parallels. We see Joseph being sold into slavery. Joseph did nothing wrong. We see Joseph going into Potiphar's house and being accused of rape. Joseph did nothing wrong. We see Joseph going into prison, sitting down between two prisoners. Joseph did not deserve to be in prison. But here Joseph is being punished for the sins of his brothers. When we get on over into Genesis chapter 45, Joseph is blatantly telling us that all that he went through, all of the negativity, all of the punishment that he went through was for the purpose of the redemption of his family and the security of the purposes of God through this family. But in, in Genesis 42, the, the sons have gone over to get... To get um, grain, and when they got there in Genesis 42, verse 8, it says, And Joseph recognized his brothers. And Joseph recognized his brothers. It's a form of the word hacker. Nah. It's a form of this word that says, Identify, please. Joseph identified his brothers, just like, just like, just like Jacob identified the coat of many colors, just like Rahab identified, uh, Rahab said, identify these things that indicate your sin. Now, now Joseph is identifying his brothers, but they did not hakanah him. They did not recognize him. They could not identify him. They could not identify their redeemer. But what we see in that story, and you know the story well, here is Judah, a man who is living in rebellion. Here is Judah, a man who wanted to kill his younger brother, Joseph. Here is Judah in Genesis 37, who sells his, Genesis 38, who is away from them with, with the uh, hire of the Adulamite. He's in, he marries a Canaanite. His life is off the rails. He's separated from his family. But now when we come over to Genesis 42, 43, 45. Here is Judah saying of his brother Benjamin, not burn him and not kill him, but Judah's life has been transformed. Judah understood God's great grace in Genesis chapter 38, and Judah is saying to his brother Joseph, who he betrayed and sold into slavery and, and was a primary instigator of everything bad that had happened in Joseph's life up to this point, and now Judah is looking at his brother and saying, please don't take my brother, take me. Please don't let harm come to my brother, let harm come to me. Take me as a sacrifice. This man had been radically transformed. It was a major breakthrough in Judah's life. He was back with his family, and instead of punishing everyone around him for his sin, he's willing to take the punishment for the sins of others. And that is the beginning and the middle and end of the story of Genesis here in Genesis 45. He stopped using his power. He stopped feeling superior. He, he stopped abusing his, the promises of God in Genesis 12. He stopped thinking that he was righteous and everybody else was the problem. He stopped justifying. He said, I am broken. And when we get to a place of brokenness and restoration, we stop using everybody else for our gratification and we start laying down our lives for everybody else for their salvation. We want to see others come to Christ. We want to see others preserved. 
And so there is this breakthrough, I believe, that happened in Genesis 38 in the life of Judah that brought him back into the family, and he's now a radically transformed man. The fourth breakthrough and the final breakthrough is this. I think the phrase, hocker, no. Identify, please. I think this text, first of all, brings us face-to-face with ourselves. I think it brings us face-to-face with our self-righteousness. I, bring, I think it brings us face-to-face with our self-justification. I think it brings us face-to-face with our blaming everybody else for everything that's wrong in our lives. What do you see when you see yourself? What do you see when you see yourself? Identify, please. Identify, please. Do you see your rebellion? Every one of us that has ever found ourselves sinking in sin, it's always because we're hanging around hiring the Adulamite, the wrong people, or we've isolated ourselves from the family of God and we're hiding in our sin. Do you, see, do you see that? Do you see that? Do you see the self-justification? Do you see the self-righteousness? Do you see the bitterness? Do you see the anger? Do you see the desire that is in your heart for harm to come to others because you think that they're the reason that bad things are happening in your life? Do you see your lust? Do you see yourself unable to have relationships with people? because you have a utilitarian view of human beings and they're only there to be used. That was Judah. And Judah found himself, and many of us do, in the midst of our sin, wanting to punish everybody else for our sin. Identify yourself. (laughs) Identify yourself this morning. Secondly, identify the plan of God. God is is on mission and has called us to be a part of his mission. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you my story this morning, but (laughs) I'd be the last guy that God would call. And I wouldn't be up here if he hadn't called me. I'd be the last guy. I'd be the the least of the apostles. I'd I'd be the lowliest of the low. God had to have been desperate. He had to have been scraping the bottom of the barrel to call me to be a servant, to call me into his family. But he did. And he did it knowing full well, even before the foundation, before I was ever born, that I was going to do everything that I've done, commit every sin that I've ever committed, have all of that charged to my account. Yet he said, I want you, Mark Powell. And he says the same thing about you. He says the same thing about you this morning. He says, I want you to be a part of my plan. So he identifies us to ourselves. He identifies his plan to us and calls us to be a part of it. And finally, he identifies Messiah. Every one of us in this room has to determine hakarnah. Determine, please. Hakana. Determine, please. 
Determine, please. There's this genealogy in Matthew 1. It's broken down into three parts. We see all of these names, and we see the name of Tamar. And when we get to the end of it, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Determine, please. Identify, please. Our great God in his great plan has, has done everything that needs to be done for us to look at Jesus Christ and see that he indeed is a redeemer, that he indeed is our savior, that he indeed is the one who lived a life of perfect righteousness, the only one who could have died for our sin in our place, and the only one who rose victorious over sin and is seated at his right hand. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Identify, please. Are you trusting him this morning? Are you trusting him? You're not so messed up that he doesn't want you. You're not so messed up that he doesn't want you. There's nothing, no sin that you've committed that would cause God to say, I don't want him or her. There is relentless grace that is pursuing you, and I would ask you today to have a relentless faith in this God who has done so much to make sure that we know precisely who he is. Would you call on his name? Would you call on his name and say, Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I'm not a righteous man. I need your righteousness. Please cleanse me. I trust you and I believe in you. I believe that you lived a life of perfect righteousness. I believe that you died for my sin in my place. I believe that you rose victorious over sin. I believe that you're coming back. I trust you now to make me right with holy God. Would you identify Jesus Christ this morning?